What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. Down to the Final Four, a look back in the MLB Divisional Series, and a look ahead to the LCS. Plus, in a week of upsets, were there any changes in the top and bottom 10 NFL power rankings? And... We preview the Bruins' upcoming season with a special guest. You're listening to episode 90 of Let Me Speak. Let's get it started. Intro. Let Me Speak. What is going on, everybody? Coming at you on Tuesday, October 17, 2023. We're making a landmark episode right here. This is number 90. 90 episodes of Let Me Speak. That means the countdown is on to 100. We are so close to 100. Now, I'm getting very, very excited for it. But for right now, let's go right now with episode 90. We've got a really good show, a good episode coming up for you. We've got uh, another set of NFL power rankings coming up. Uh, we've got some uh, quick hits we got to get to. And then, of course, the great Bridget Prue from WEEI joins the show to talk a little bit of Bruins as the season gets underway. But we're going to start in the MLB, obviously, because playoffs are getting that much more intense. We are on the league championship series now after what I would call some shocking up uh, upsets in the league divisional series the Orioles who won 101 games the 100 win Dodgers the 104 win Braves they're all gone out from the playoffs and before we get to the LCS I want to reflect on that LDS and everything that's really gone on in the playoffs you know when you put those three teams together along with uh, the Tampa Bay Rays who won 99 games they went a combined one and ten for a record so it wasn't even a competitive series. They were just all completely outmatched. You know, the Braves were able to win that one game because of a wild double play and a Bryce Harper base running mistake. So it's brought up the conversation of it does the playoffs, do they need to be refined? Does there need to be some sort of refined schedule or a new format? And honestly, I, I like the format of, how it is with having one team get the bye and then everyone else playing in a best two out of three. I think the thing that has to be refined though, at least in that is the scheduling part of it because <clears throat> baseball is, it's not one of those ones where you could take a day off um, or another day off and get back to the way you were. The thing is with the schedule side of things, the wild card round is a best two out of three that starts on Tuesday and ends Thursday. So those teams that have a buy. So this year it was the Orioles, the uh, Dodgers, the Braves, and then the Astros. Those teams had to wait until Saturday. So their last game was Sunday. Then they go six days before they play their first postseason game so while i'm not making any sort of excuses or whatever 
it's a pattern. It's a theme that the schedule needs to be tighter. So really what I would do uh, if I was commissioner Rob Manfred is I would rather make the wild card game, just a single game elimination the way it was uh, do that. Or you have to make the start of the LDS sooner than Saturday. You have to do it maybe on a Wednesday or on a Thursday, you know, similar to how like an all-star break would be because you can't wait that long and let those teams go cold for that long. And not only that, but those teams that get the buy when they end their year, you know, they maybe go depending on when they clinch, you know, two weeks without playing like meaningful competitive baseball, you know, it's not like um, the end of the wild card chases where everyone was playing until like the last week or so. Um, So that's what I think has to be done. It's not necessarily the format. It's the schedule that's got to be tightened up. You know, you can't have this long of a break uh, for a team uh, for baseball. That is a daily sport. Cause you ask anyone who plays uh, regular baseball or is in any kind of league, uh, you have multiple days off. You're already in a hole. So that's where I think the advantage was for some of these teams that won. Um, not making excuses, as I said, though, for the Braves, who once again fall victim to the Phillies in four games. And honestly, the question I had from that series was, what on earth happened to Atlanta's lineup? This was a lineup that was supposed to be insanely powerful. It's got the 40-70 guy in Acuna. He only goes two for 14. You have uh, Matt Olson struggling, Austin Riley struggling. Orlando Arcia and Marcelo Zuna both went two for 13. A team that hit over 300 home runs in the regular season only had three in the series. Like, what on earth happened to Atlanta? You know, can you say they ran into just some really good pitching in Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola? Maybe. But still, with a lineup as deep as they were, they picked a terrible time to fall off. A terrible time to fall off. And not only that, but their starting pitching wasn't even that good either. You got to remember that they hadn't had Charlie Morton and Michael Soroka for a long time now. Um, And really the only dependable guy they could rely on was Spencer Strider. So the rotation is not as deep as we initially thought. So, I mean, this as it's a, it's good that the Braves have signed all these guys to long-term deals and long-term extensions where they don't have to have this big blow up of the core or whatever, you know, they'll probably be back in this position again next year in 2024, not saying they're going to be winning 104 games, but they're at least going to be in the playoffs and be considered a favorite, but man, they really got to tune things up when it gets uh, to playoff time. The Dodgers, though, I think maybe had the worst choke job because they got swept by the Diamondbacks, okay? The Diamondbacks, who had gone, I want to say, five years without making the postseason and have been basically like a middling team, as uh, me and Cooper Leonard talked about a few weeks ago. Um, Let's just put it like this. Their starting pitching was god-awful. God-awful. I mean, you had your supposed ace, who's going to the Hall of Fame, Clayton Kershaw, absolutely get lit up, didn't even get through the first inning. Yeah, Bobby Miller couldn't get through. Uh, he couldn't even get past the third. And Lance Lynn couldn't get past the third. You want to know what the combined ERA for those three was? The combined ERA was 45.64. That's a horrible 
ERA. And not only that, but similar to Atlanta, the lineup picked a terrible time to go cold. Mookie Betts, 0 for 11. Max Muncy, 2 for 11. J.D. Martinez, 2 for 10. Freddie Freeman, 1 for 10. That lineup was horrible. And you could say it's shocking, but that's what the Dodgers do. They have a really good regular season, and then they blow it in the postseason. This time, they get totally outmatched, and they get swept by the Arizona Diamondbacks. So, I hate to say it, but, you know, this team is not as good as everyone thinks. They're just not. And, you know, we know that they're going to spend some money uh, to try and get some starting pitching. We know that for a fact. Can they do it in the postseason? We know they're going to be in the Shohei sweepstakes. But guess what? He can't pitch. And there aren't a ton of good arms out there. Um, you know, like an Aaron Nola or a Jordan Montgomery, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, I, I don't see the Dodgers, like, do it again. Win again. And even, as I've said, everyone's been talking about the COVID year sort of being an asterisk championship. You know, I'm not one who's totally putting an asterisk on it, but I would love to see this Dodgers team win the whole thing under normal circumstances. That's what I would like to see because so far they have not done that yet. Haven't done it yet. And it's kind of sad the way they just continue to choke away these playoff opportunities that they have. Um, on the other side for the American League, though, not too shocked about the Orioles getting swept by the Rangers. Rangers were one of the top teams pretty much all year long. They're a very streaky team, but I also talked about last week the lack of postseason experience that Baltimore had. You know, it was that they had a really, really young roster, not really a basically none, no playoff experience. Now that I'm thinking about it, all those guys that they have in the uh, in the pitching rotation and in the lineup, you know, not a ton of pitching rotation. Even their manager, Brandon Hyde, he's been with the team winning or losing 100-plus games for consecutive years, and now he's in this big spot uh, in the postseason. So I think, you know, while I'm not going to say that it's a very disappointing season, you know, you can't be too surprised at a team that has this little experience in the postseason just get completely overmatched. You know, their starting rotation, uh, Bradish, Rodriguez, and Kramer, they were overmatched by the moment as well. Um, so I, I hope that the Orioles can go get a true ace and can get a really strong arm because that's, at least on the field, uh, what they need to do. Um, I like their lineup. I like the young core that they have, um, but it's just, and they have a good bullpen as well. They have to just get a true ace and a big starting rotation. And contrary to what they've been doing for multiple years, they're going to have to go and pay for one. They really are because they've got a really good roster right now. And I can't see them trading any of them right now. Um, and then on the other side, the Astros taking care of the twins, seven straight eight ALCS trips for the Astros. That is very impressive. That's the modern day dynasty uh, in the MLB cheating or not, because they're just, they're just a team that's made for the playoffs. And especially against Minnesota, that starting pitching has looked much better than I thought. I really thought it was just going to be Justin Verlander and a bunch of guys, but Jose Urquidy, Framber Valdez, Christian Javier, you know, it could be a different story when they have to play Texas, but at least against Minnesota, I was very impressed uh, to see what they did. Um, but speaking of Texas, that is where the ALCS comes down to. Arlington versus Houston, Rangers versus Astros. 
And all of a sudden, it's now the Rangers in command. They take the first two games on the road at Minute Maid Park, and now they're heading home with a two-games-to-none lead. And like I said about Houston starting pitching, um, I... I was impressed. I thought they looked much better than I thought, and they still do. I still think that they uh, still look really well. I mean, even in the 2 nothing loss, Justin Verlander pitched great. They just had uh, opposing starters as well that were just that much better when you have Jordan Montgomery going in game one and then Nathan Ivaldi in uh, game two. And now when you go back home, game three, you got the return of Max Scherzer, who, yes, might not be that, you know, big-time stud ace that he once was um, in his Detroit days and his Washington days. Um, but he can still be effective. And then you also have John Gray, who's been a, a dependable starter as well all year for Texas. So the Rangers are in a really good spot, and I trust their rotation uh, to get things done compared to Houston's. Um, and not only for the rotation is an issue for Houston, it's the lineup that I'm really looking at. They just really... They don't have any consistency outside of Jordan Alvarez, who, by the way, is a beast. He is a beast right now in the postseason. He's hitting 391. He's got six home runs and eight RBIs. His slugging is 1.261, and his OPS is 1.701. I mean, it's getting to that point like in David Ortiz in the 2013 World Series where you don't even pitch to him. You just have to let him walk on base and make someone else beat you. But... In terms, in terms of the rest of the lineup, there's no consistency. So far in the postseason, Jose Altuve is 4 for 25. Alex Bregman is 5 for 23. Kyle Tucker is 2 for 22. They don't have the dependable pieces in their lineup like they've had in years past. You know, there was always going to be a Carlos Correa or George Springer. You know, the lineup is just not as deep as it originally is. You know, they keep relying on Martin Maldonado who can't hit. You have Jeremy Pena. He's struggling as well. Chaz McCormick continues to struggle. Okay. So on top of the really good starting pitching that Texas has, the lineup just cannot do anything with it. And so not saying this just because the Rangers have a 2-0 series lead, but I was leaning towards Texas, and I thought they could get it done in six games. I really thought they did just because, you know, when I saw – that Scherzer and Gray were going to be activated to the LCS roster. I looked at their rotation. I looked at the Astros rotation and I would be picking all of those guys uh, if I needed a closeout game because Nathan Evaldi has been on fire this postseason. He's been probably one of the better postseason pitchers in recent memory. Um, you have Jordan Montgomery who's holding his own. And then I mentioned Scherzer and Gray. So I like Texas to come out of here and get the victory uh, and make themselves in the World Series, which I did say uh, when I returned to uh, doing these podcast episodes, I initially said Texas might be that uh, favorite uh, when I first did this. I thought Texas would be the favorite because you couldn't trust Tampa. Baltimore was too young, um, and Houston was struggling at the time. So I did, you know, I'm not going to, you know, pull it out during this episode right now, but I'm pretty sure that I had said Texas would be the favorite um, back in August. I want to say it was either July or August. I think it was one of those times where I had said that Texas to me would be the favorite to make the World Series. In terms of winning it, eh, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, on the other side, for the NLCS, 
I really see this series between the Phillies and the Diamondbacks. These are basically two teams that are almost the same um, and basically have sort of the same mantras. They're kind of a, a scrappy team. They've got chips on their shoulders. They both made it through the wild card. Um, obviously, things changed uh, with Philly taking game one, five to three. Um, you know, Philly taking that one nothing lead now at home. But I will say I was, uh, when the series initially started, I was leaning towards the Phillies. Now, I think that these are two teams that are fun to watch just because they're scrappy. Um, all the things that I mentioned, they're almost similar to each other. The only difference is for Arizona, very little uh, postseason experience, similar to Baltimore. They don't have zero postseason experience, but they will only have a little bit. Like Evan Longoria, um, who is past his prime, he's got the experience. Tommy Pham has had a couple of runs now and again. I mean, really the most experienced guy, one of the more experienced guys they have is their manager, Tori Lovello, who was the bench coach uh, during a championship run with the Red Sox. So he has some memories. Um, but really what I'm looking at basically is the Philly lineup versus the Arizona bullpen. I think that bullpen is really going to be tested uh, because this Philly lineup is so dangerous. They're so dangerous. And they've been basically running through the postseason without one of their best hitters uh, without his power. Kyle Schwarber in game one hit his first home run of the playoffs. And you got to remember, this was a 40-plus home run hitter guy. He's only hitting a buck 78 right now. So the fact that they've been doing it without Schwarber doing that, they're relying on guys who have just been playing out of this world. Bryce Harper, 409. Trey Turner hitting 500. Nick Castellanos, 370. I mean, 10 of the 16 home runs that they've that have been hit by the Phillies have been from these three guys. And Bryce Harper... I mean, he's just, he's a guy who is made for Philly. He's a guy who loves to compete and he's going to be just, just fighting every single, every single game, every single game. um, He's putting out that effort and he's just got that power as a left-handed hitter. You know, I I would have to favor the Phillies in this one. I think we're going to see a Rangers Phillies uh, world series in 2023. That's, that's what I think. Uh, is going to happen. Um, you know, we'll probably know by uh, next week. You know, we've already got two games done. The ALCS game two is tonight. It'll already be done by the time this podcast comes out. So we could be seeing two nothing leads. Uh, and Rangers and Phillies might be uh, what I am expecting uh, between these two. But I'm really looking forward to watching the uh, LCS. You know, I sort of like the parody. I know Philly made the World Series last year, but still, they were just a team that struggled for a while. And I want to see what Bryce Harper does. You know, he want to get a little bit of vengeance when the Nats won the World Series in 19 uh, without him. So we'll see what happens there. Um, But coming up next, we're going to dive into some football and get to our second top 10 and bottom 10 power rankings. Were there any changes? You'll find out right after this. Now we're going to move from baseball to football. Last week, we revealed our first ever top 10 and bottom 10 power rankings in the NFL. That's where we looked at the top 10 teams in the league and the bottom 10 teams 
in the league. So here is addition number two coming off of week six. And number 10 is going to be a little bit shocking, but considering what they did this past Sunday against a really tough opponent, you have to put the Cleveland Browns at number 10, especially with how tight the AFC North is. I mean, the fact that they held a high-powered 49ers team to only 17 points, and yes, they won on a lucky missed field goal from Jake Moody, the defense is legit. The Cleveland Browns defense is legit if they're only allowing 215 yards and 17 points to the 49ers. This is the best defense statistically in yards allowed in football. They were only allowing 200 yards per game. Now, this probably will change considering how much of a struggle it has been for the offense. Obviously, if you're starting P.J. Walker, a lifelong backup and a former XFL guy, um, you know that's going to be a big issue. But it's been the run game that they leaned on. Uh, even without Nick Chubb, you got guys like Jerome Ford and Kareem Hunt still making progress in that run game. I mean, they put up 160 rush yards. And you got to remember, the San Francisco D-line, Armstead, Hargrave, Bosa, they've got some big bodies there. They've got some big bodies there. And still, they were able to put up 160 rush yards. This is statistically the fourth best rushing team in the NFL. And if they can keep that up and even get competency from Deshaun Watson when he comes back, if he can give them that kind of flexibility, then this Browns team can shock some people. Do I expect it to happen? Probably not. I don't really expect it to happen. But hey, let's enjoy Cleveland while they're in the top 10 of anything. A top 10 of everything. Let's give them a nice little applause for that one because I don't think they're going to last that far. We are in the middle of five weeks. Keep that in mind. Um, number nine, I am going to put the Baltimore Ravens there. They were there last week. They go into London uh, and they beat the Titans 23 to 16. This is just a standard performance uh, by Baltimore. And more so, my concern is just their long term game. You know, from week to week, it's still. You know, we know what it's going to be. Lamar Jackson's only going to put up about 200-something yards passing. He's going to rush for 40 or 50 or maybe even has to be the leading rusher like he was this past week uh, with 62 yards. Um, so that's it's. I still am on the side of that is not the formula for success. But at least for a regular season kind of thing, when it's early on, it's only week six, you can still win some games that way. I still just don't want my quarterback getting as many rushes as the lead back because like the rest, like Lamar's career has been, he's been an injured guy. He always injures his ankle or his knee. So he has to rely more on his arm. So the fact that he went 21 of 30 for 223 yards is standard for him. Throwing a pick, he's got to do better at that but he's got to rely more on his arm if the Ravens are going to have sustained success. That's why I can't move the Ravens right now uh, where they are at number nine. What I can do is sing the praises of the number eight team, and that's the Jaguars. I said this team last week is legit, and yes, they always have their way with the Colts, just like they did this past week, 37-20. to 20. And I raved about their offense, how well they were. Yes, the offense struggled, but they got really good field position, which is why they were able to put up all those points because this week in their victory against the Colts was all about defense, getting those turnovers. They pick off Gardner Minshew three times. They force a fumble from him. And now there are some names that you're going to have to 
really pay attention to. Foyasade Aluakun. I had to do that a couple of times. He's the third leading tackler in football. Josh Allen, the defensive guy, is tied for third in sacks in the NFL. Darius Williams and Andre Sisco each have three interceptions. Um, the only concern, at least for the Jaguars D, is that pass defense. You know, are they going to rely too much on these ball hawking, uh, forcing turnovers kind of way? Because you got to remember, they did allow 310 yards of passing yards uh, compared to 44 rush yards uh, from Indy. So that is the minimal concern with Jacksonville. But I still think this is a team to be reckoned with. Because now they've got the great weapons on offense who might not get it done every week. They now have a defense that can back them up for sure. Uh, number seven, I'm going to make a little bit of a change here uh, from last week's ranking. Seven, I am going with the Cowboys, who squeaked out a victory on Monday night over the Chargers 20-17. to 17. And that's why I say it, squeaking. You know, this offense is... They're very hit and miss. They're very inconsistent. Dak Prescott can have a really great game or he can have a really struggling game. Offense was okay. They were okay. Uh, they didn't have any turnovers and didn't have any uh, crucial mistakes. Um, the defense, though, I really kept my eyes on because they have been hurting since Travion Diggs' injury. I mean, they have been struggling. You saw the way the Chargers uh, were able to move up on the ball, and really the Chargers did it to themselves. Uh, the fact that they weren't able to get into the game. So that's why you can't really buy in with the Cowboys right now because that defense has been hurting so much since maybe the best cornerback in the league uh, is out for the season with the injury. And I did have to move them a step back because of the new number six team and how well they did this past Sunday. That's the Detroit Lions sitting now at five and one, not just winning against the Bucks, but dominating. Over the Bucks, twenty to six was the final score. Obviously, they weren't distracted by those light orange creamsicle Tampa Bay jerseys, not at all. And now they're on a four-game winning streak. And really, I got to give much credit to Jared Goff. I, I continue to say that over and over. I'm impressed with the turnaround that he's had from his last days in LA to now this new era with Detroit, especially the way the offense had to play without. Uh, Jameer Gibbs, who wasn't playing, and then David Montgomery, who uh, left in the uh, middle of the game. Goff had to do more, and step up he did. 30 of 44, 353 yards, and two touchdowns. I mean, what a performance it was from Jared Goff. And then for Amonra St. Brown, I know he got 12 of those for 124 yards and a touchdown, but I would be very surprised if he doesn't get all pro votes. And quite honestly, like, if Detroit keeps this up, even if they... uh you know, I don't I don't have their schedule memorized. I know next week they're going to Baltimore. I think that's going to be another big game. You know, if they keep doing this, I might have to keep moving them up and up and up because this team is just so much fun to watch, especially with the kind of culture that uh, Dan Campbell has brought in there. They just have a lot of guys that are able to uh, buy into his message. So I like the Lions, and I expect them maybe to uh, move up a little bit uh, in the rankings. Number five. I think I'm going to have to leave the Dolphins here at number five, strictly because of who they played. I mean, last week they beat the Giants easily. This week they beat the Panthers easily. You got to remember the Panthers are winless. Um, but really, they, at least for me, they needed this as a get-right game, just to remind everyone how dangerous they can be. You got to keep in mind, of the 424 total yards they got, 
they averaged six and a half per play. Six and a half. You got to remember, this offense for Miami is built on speed. And Tua just has to find these guys. You find Jalen Waddle. You give the ball uh, to Tyreek Hill. You force it into his hands. And Tyreek only had to catch six times to get 163 yards and a touchdown. And which, by the way, I have a little bit of an issue with his uh, side uh, celebrations on these touchdowns. Just grabbing someone's phone, doing a backflip. I have a big, I, I have an issue with that. I'm not really a big fan of that. Um, but along with the speed, you know, now there are no issues in the running back game because you're thinking, oh, with Devin a chain uh, now on IR, he's missing four games. What do you do? What do you do? Guess what? You have Raheem Moster, who you thought was going to be your top option. He goes back into the lead way. He rushes 17 times for 115 and two touchdowns. And he gets three catches for 17 yards and a touchdown as well. So the Dolphins continue to be a high-powered offense. Um, like I had said a couple of weeks ago, the gut check games are going to be when they play the Eagles and when they play the Chiefs. Next week, we get to see it on Sunday night when they play Philly. You know, defensively, are they going to be able to stop Philly? Offensively, can they carve up the Eagles' defense? We'll have to wait and see. But if the Dolphins do win that game, I'm definitely going to have to move them up uh, in the rankings. Number two, or uh, sorry, the fourth team, uh, the second one, number two in the division uh, of the AFC East right now is the Bills, which is who I'm putting at number four because they squeak out a victory versus the New York Giants. And really, um, it, I put them there over the Dolphins because, again, I look at the Dolphins opponent, but I look at the Bills, and everything just looked off. They they looked off uh, for Buffalo. And, yes, Josh Allen made some mistakes. He had a really bad interception. Uh, he could have put the game away if he connected with Dawson Knox uh, in that fourth quarter. And luckily, you know, they maybe got away with a, with a couple of calls, um, especially on that goal line. And plus, yeah, a bunch of goal line mistakes from the Giants themselves. Um, but similar to the Cowboys, defense and injuries continues to be the big issue. You got to remember, this is a Giants offense that didn't have their starting quarterback. They were starting Tyrod Taylor. Um, maybe one of the weakest offensive lines. Um, and they allowed 317 yards to the Giants. Okay, so that that's a little bit concerning. And again, it's injuries, injuries, injuries. How can Buffalo stay healthy? And especially now that they're one game back of the Dolphins, you know, it's time for them to kick in the gear. I mean, yes, they have a nice, easy uh, week next week against the Patriots, or show, so we think. Um, but they... They got to get their defense together. They got to get that. They got to get everybody on the same page and try and get back to that dominant phase they once were. Uh, moving into the top three, I have to move the Eagles back at number three uh, ahead of number two from where they were last week. Because let's face it, 20 to 14 loss to the Jets. They're no longer undefeated. And my suspicions about their lack of dominance officially came true. I mean, Jalen Hurts against that Jets defense looked a little bit lifeless. I mean, yes, they moved the ball down the field, but again, they had red zone struggles. Three interceptions from Jalen Hurts and four turnovers total from the Eagles. I mean, we saw A.J. Brown have a great day, um, but the Jets just made the Eagles look pedestrian. They really did. And the fact that uh, for a Jets offense that struggled the way they did, for the Eagles to let them get 20 points on the board is kind of concerning. And you would think that 
this should be an easy game. Maybe they're overlooking the Jets and looking ahead to that Sunday night game against the Dolphins. I I ultimately think that's what happened, is they were kind of overlooking the Jets and saw, oh, we got the 5-1 and one Dolphins coming up on Sunday night football. We got to pay more attention to them than we do with the Jets. And sure enough, the defense for New York was just able to feast on Philadelphia. So that loss vaults them back to number three and puts Kansas City at number two. I'm putting the Chiefs at number two. I can't put them at number one uh, just because, again, the the opponent that they faced and the fact that they struggled against them 19-8. to um, I, I was listening to the game uh, on WEI. I was listening to Westwood One's coverage of uh, Broncos and Chiefs, and Tony Baselli, the color guy, um, he said that, you know, maybe Kansas City was overthinking things um, or they were trying to get too cute. I mean, they had the fake field goal play um, and then they had a couple of third down opportunities. But I, I mean, I wasn't I'm not too concerned about how they performed. I mean, yes, they went four of 13 on third down and they went one of five in the red zone. I think that's just because they're sort of trying some new things out. I knew they could kind of have their way uh, with Denver. I think the concerns um, still stay the same, you know, getting a rushing attack balanced out with Patrick Mahomes. I mean, 96 rush yards compared to 293 pass yards. Um, Penalties as well are an issue. They're still top 10 in penalties called against them. And then you have Patrick Mahomes who had to throw it 40 times. Yes, he went 30 of 40. Uh, and he threw for over 300 yards. He also had a really bad pick. I mean, he was just scrambling and he tried to make something. He tried to make too much happen, essentially. So I think this was sort of a game that, yes, they won, but they were sort of getting in their own way. Where it could have been if they just stuck to what they knew well um, with Mahomes continuing to find Kelsey and not trying to get too cute. Um, they probably could have had a bigger win than this. And maybe if they had a bigger win, they'd go to number one. But Unfortunately, I have to keep number one the same, and I'm putting San Fran there, even though they lost to the Cleveland Browns 19 to 17. Uh, I propped up the Browns defense as well. Um, that's that's for one thing. Um, I would say if not for an Eagles loss, they still might not be at the top. Um, you know, a, a couple there were a couple of factors into this. Obviously, Jake Moody missing the game winner. Um, they also had a ton of injuries, you know, Debo left. Christian McCaffrey left. Trent Williams was banged up. Um, so it was the the tough defense, the almost come from behind win. Uh, they had they could have won it on the final play, and then injuries. You know, those are the sort of things I'm looking at. I mean, let's face it, Brock Purdy had his worst game of his career and his first ever regular season loss. I mean, the way that defense shut him down, 12 of 27 for a buck 25, a touchdown, and a pick. Um and then on the other side of the ball for San Fran with their defense, they forced turnovers like they do, but uh, surprisingly struggled uh, in Cleveland moving down the ball. They allowed 334 yards uh, to the Browns. And keep in mind, they averaged 278, which is still top three in the league. So I guess it was just something about the day, you know, similar, maybe similar to the Eagles overlooking the Browns and looking more at the Vikings um, on Monday night football. That could be uh, something to watch for. But I think the injuries and the fact that it was the very last play of the game, they could have won it. Uh, it. It lets me keep them there at number one. So sorry, Chiefs fans, but you might have to wait another week uh, to get into number one. So uh, that's what I see in the top 10. As always, let me know in the comments um, anything like that about what I might have missed in the top 10. In the bottom 10, 
Uh, meanwhile, as I said, they might not be moving anytime soon. I feel bad for putting this team at number 10, even though they were on a bye week. But the Packers at uh, number 10, even though they had a bye week, I think just everyone else above them had a better week. I mean, you had a Jets win. You had the Giants play tough. Um, you had the Commanders win a game. You know, the Commanders were sitting at number nine, and uh, they were doing well. Uh, the Saints are going through some injuries. The Bucks are sort of coming back down to earth. So everyone just above them kind of had a better week. I think we'll get a better sense on where the Packers are uh, this week when they play the Broncos uh, in Denver at 1-5. If they lose the game, we might have to move them a little bit further down the list. Um, but if they win, they might be able to get out of that number 10 spot. You know, it's just kind of a wait and see with Jordan Love. Uh, and that team but number nine I would call this the most significant jump and that would be the Jets taking down the Eagles as I mentioned uh, that's just defense was really really good against Philly and what we've seen in the last two weeks is kind of what we expected going into the season you know we had expectations that this defense can back up Aaron Rodgers and Rodgers just has to be he doesn't even have to be the same MVP level that he was he just had to be better and more competent than, than Zach Wilson. And so this defense against maybe one of the more powerful offenses in Philly, take away the ball 40 times. They allow a heavily run team in Philly and they only allow 80 yards and keep in mind their pass D was without sauce Gardner and DJ Reed. So the fact that they only gave up two touchdowns uh, to Philly, very, very impressive. Now, the offense is still an issue. That's why, you know, Zach Wilson, he didn't lose the game. You know, he didn't make silly, silly mistakes. Yes, he was sacked for five times. And yes, they were 2 of 11 on third down. But he was 19 of 33, and he didn't throw a pick. That's all they need from Zach Wilson. If Wilson can play a little bit better, then you might see him get out of this bottom 10 ranking. But the offense still, to me, remains uh, an issue, which is why... The Jets are still on these bottom 10 rankings, but they did make a jump. They got back to number nine rather than uh, getting closer and closer uh, to the bottom. Number eight, um, I have to put Minnesota here. You know, they got back on track and they won against the lowly Chicago Bears. Um, but as expected, Minnesota's offense really struggled without Justin Jefferson. Okay, 220 total yards. Kirk Cousins only had 181. He uh, fumbled twice. He lost one of them. They were 2 of 13 on third down. I mean, let's just face it. This defense goes nowhere uh, without Justin Jefferson. And I mentioned week after week that Kirk Cousins just can't make the big plays. I mean, luckily, he gets bailed out by his own defense and Jordan Hicks uh, getting a 42-yard scoop and score. Um, luckily, he bails him out there, um, which is why I, I still don't have a ton of faith in the Vikings. And I think, you know, I, I would not be surprised if they absolutely get steamrolled on Monday night against the 49ers. They're just lucky that they played the bears and were able to sneak a victory away uh, at 19 13. Number seven, though, I'm putting a new team in here. I'm putting the Tennessee Titans at number seven right now, just because of not only, you know, their two and four record, but now they've got a ton of issues at quarterback. I mean, I didn't have enough hope with them, with Ryan Tannehill anyway, but now Tannehill has a an high ankle sprain. They're going to have to turn to Malik Willis, who obviously they didn't have faith in. Otherwise, they wouldn't have drafted Will Levis. So kind of similar to what the Patriots are going through. Tannehill is their best option, but he's not a good option right now. Tannehill 
is in the is outside the top 20 in pass yards. He's 23rd. He's got two touchdowns to six picks. You got to keep in mind, only three other guys, three other guys have more interceptions uh, than Ryan Tannehill. That's Jimmy G, Jalen Hurts, who threw three this past week, and Mac Jones, who uh, continues to struggle. Um, even with Tannehill, this is the fourth worst passing offense. You know, it can't be Derrick Henry because obviously, as we see, running backs continue to deteriorate and slow down, and that's exactly what's happened to Henry. He's still a force, but he's not the same force that he once was. And if you don't have a cornerback who's slinging the ball, then you're kind of screwed. So I hate to say it, but I think Tennessee is going to stay in this uh, bottom 10 for uh, a long time, maybe for the rest of the year. Uh, number six, I do have to make a little bit of movement here. I have to put the Broncos uh, at number six, even though they lost on Thursday night. They did lose to the Chiefs. Um, it was just a matter of looking respectable, and I think they did, uh, considering all the other teams uh, that had lost. You know, it was a respectable performance. And Russell Wilson just continues to be an issue for Denver. You know, sometimes it's either one or the other. It's either Sean Payton struggles or Russell Wilson struggles. Last week in their Jets loss, it was Russell Wilson. This week, again, Russell Wilson. Only went 13 of 22 for 95 yards, two picks, and he was sacked four times. Yes, he had a touchdown in there, but we're talking about the negatives for Russell Wilson. So, honestly, I don't know what more Sean Payton can do. I have no idea what more he can do. He's going to have to basically have a one-on-one with Russell Wilson and saying, get your head out of your you-know-what and just go play quarterback. I mean, we saw a couple of times, or at least I saw during that Thursday night game, he had some vintage moments where he escapes the pockets and he's running around. You know, he can do that. You know, he doesn't have sort of that same speed that he used to have in his Seattle days, but he can still manage to get guys open. You know, it's just these bad, bad mistakes that he continues to make that uh, just continues to haunt him and the entire Denver Broncos, considering how much they... Uh, they put into him to be uh, the next guy at quarterback. So I don't know what more to say about the Broncos. It's I don't think it's going to get any better from here. Uh, number five, I am going to put the Cardinals here. Uh, they did go down a spot because they just did not look good against the L.A. Rams, even though it was a division opponent. I said last week, this is a scrappy team. It, it was kind of fun to watch, but now they're just coming back down to earth. And really the big key from this past week was uh, no James Conner. I mean, not having him on the field was clearly evident. The fact that their quarterback, Josh Dobbs, uh, was their leading rusher, and he only rushed seven times for 47 yards. So, you know, Damian Williams um, and all these other guys, they just couldn't do it. They don't have enough weapons on defense. Joshua Dobbs is having to do too much. Um, You know, he threw 41 times. He had an interception and a fumble. So... I hate to say it, but you're kind of waiting for Kyler Murray. You're just like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Because this team just doesn't have it. They do not have it at all. Uh, Number four on the uh, bottom 10, I'm going to put the Bears. I'm going to put the Chicago Bears in this one. They lose to the Vikings, and now things get worse because Justin Fields dislocates his thumb. Um, It's not, I mean, first off, it's not like they were great beforehand. I mean, before he got hurt, Fields was 6 of 10 for 58. He had a pick, and he was sacked four times, okay? So it wasn't like it was any better. So it's just only going to get worse for Chicago. I think we got to start learning the name Tyson Badgent because he's going to be the guy going forward. And I'm sorry, but Chicago's not going anywhere, even if they had Justin Fields completely healthy. So nothing more needs to be said about that one. 
Uh, number three, I want to spend some time on, and that's the uh, I'm putting the Giants here. You know, I, I I thought they showed a lot of fight that even without Daniel Jones, they were one play away. And you have to remember, this is why Tyrod Taylor is a backup, because at the end of the first half, uh, when you have first and goal, 12 seconds and no timeouts, you don't choose to run the ball. You don't audible into a run. And then even so, you have to get your guys much, much uh, quicker and organized. So it's clear why Brian Dable laid into him, because I would have too. And then on the last untimed down, he goes for the floater. Um, and yes, Darren Waller had his fingertips on it. Um, and yes, there probably should have been a flag thrown. But even still, um, the fact that it wasn't executed, I mean, I still I still give him props for fighting against the tough Bills team. And we saw the difference in Saquon Barkley. He returned to the lineup, and we saw how much of a difference he is on offense. He's a huge difference. I mean, 24 rushes for 93 yards. Yes, he doesn't help uh, with the red zone issues. You know, the fact that the Giants went 0 for 5, but... Saquon's going to be big if the Giants want to turn this thing around at any point. And then you have a defense that just continues to look at the offense and be like, help, help, help. Look at what we're doing to the Bills. We're holding them scoreless for three quarters. And you guys can't do anything out there. I mean, I would be frustrated if I was a defender for uh, the Giants too. Um, But they have the commanders. And I think, you know, they have an opportunity. They've got a good defense. If uh, that offense can take away those boneheaded mistakes and the offensive line just stays manageable, then I think there's a shot. I think there's a shot. Uh, Number two, I'm putting the Patriots here. You know, things looked better, but it's still a struggle for that offense. They lose to the Raiders 21-17. This is, I'm very interested to find this out, that this is the worst start for the Patriots since 1995. That's a long time ago. So I think as a Patriots fan, I got to start getting used to that. But We'll get into the Patriots a little bit later. Number one, we got to put the Panthers in there. Still the only winless team in the NFL at over six. They get blown away again, uh, this time by the Dolphins. It's the second straight week that they allowed 42 points. Honestly, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed, and I think the bye week couldn't have come at a better time. Bryce Young gets a nice reset because, let's face it, he hasn't lost this much. And uh, since his time at Alabama. So he's got to start getting used to this. Um, so maybe the Panthers can turn things around, but I think uh, I have, I hate to say it, but until they get that win, they're going to be prime candidates for sitting at number one in terms of a uh, bottom 10 for these power rankings. So again, there's your bottom 10 uh, starts with the Packers at 10 ends with the Panthers at number one, as always comment below. If you think anything's missing or if you agree with these rankings. Um, But coming up next, um, there is some stuff also going around in the NFL that I want to touch on with a couple of other things uh, that we didn't get to in our first two segments. And that leads into our quick hit segment. Don't go anywhere. As I briefly mentioned, there are a couple of topics that we didn't get to in our first two segments. So we're leaving it all for this three segment and we're rapid firing them. Let's go to quick hits. And I want to start still in the NFL and talk about one of the teams that weren't in the top 10 or the bottom 10. And that's the Colts. And obviously the big story was their quarterback, Anthony Richardson. He's now done for the year. He and Indy are opting for shoulder surgery. 
And honestly, it was a rebuilding year anyway for the Colts. And Jonathan Taylor's probably thinking, I came back for this just to see my guy uh, get injured. The only hype and hope that this franchise had is now done. Um, I mean, like I said, I'm not buying into this Anthony Richardson hype just yet because he has only played four games. He's played four games, and, you know, yes, he apparently has arm strength. He, he can hit some incredible throws. I'm not buying it yet. I'm not buying it yet until I see the Colts actually win some games. I mean, yes, it was – they were three and two. Or I should say, uh, yes, they were winning some games. But you also got to remember um, who they were playing against. So I'm not I'm not buying into Anthony Richardson, yes. And plus, we've done this for multiple times now with recent quarterbacks. We've done it with Justin Fields. We've done it with uh, Mac Jones. We did. We had a Zach Wilson hype at some point, okay? So we can't buy into these quarterbacks so quickly. You know, yes, did he have hype around the draft? Yes. But let's see how they do in an NFL career. This is a completely different game. Totally different game. So Anthony Richardson done for the year which means the Colts might be appearing on our bottom 10 uh, in the future. But I will say more time for Gardner Minshew. And I'm a, I said before, I'm a big fan of Minshew mania. So, uh, you know, I not necessarily because he's a good guy, but just, he's really entertaining. You know, he's like uncle Rico. He can throw a football over the mountains. Uh, that That's why uh, I'm a big fan of him. Uh, moving on though, uh, the Olympics, we don't really talk much about the Olympics uh, on this podcast, but it's kind of important what happened uh, in the last week or so. Uh, the Olympic Committee has added new sports uh, for 2028 when uh, the Olympics come to L.A. They come to the United States uh, in 2028. Among them are flag football, baseball, and softball, which got has me really excited because now you have either current guys or former guys, uh, players, who might be interested. I mean, we've already heard Gronk might want to take part in flag football. Bryce Harper already has uh, some aspirations of playing. So uh, really what I see is that the NFL and the MLB need to have some conversations now about um, how they can maybe work around this. Because if enough guys uh, in the NFL uh, and in the MLB say, yes, I want to go play in the Olympics, um, then they need to figure out a way of working around how they can continue to have their season. Because let's face it, with uh, when the Olympics happen at the end of July and the beginning of August, that's when preseason and the NFL really ramps up. And then obviously in baseball, it's the uh, trade deadline, uh, post-All-Star break, you know, that kind of stuff. So they got to they gotta find a way to uh, work around that. Um, and really, they should be taking advice from the NHL about how they work around their seasons. Because I think the NHL... They've gone, you know, back and forth. They allowed uh, players to go. Then they didn't. Now they're bringing him back. So I think, you know, Roger Goodell, Rob Manfred, they should maybe get on the phone with uh, Gary Bettman or just anyone in, uh, you know, the history of the NHL since they allowed players to go to the Olympics, um, how they're how they're able to make it work uh, around their regular season. So that, that'll be something to really monitor. Keep your eyes and ears uh, open for that. Uh, in college football, meanwhile, as we go back uh, to football, there's already some hype uh, that's getting died down uh, in the early season. We're almost, you know, we're in the middle of uh, conference season right now. And once we hit uh, November and December, it's really going to ramp up. But for right now, I mean, the hype that we saw at the beginning of the year is now starting to go away. I mean, USC and Caleb Williams, they were all the talk. Then boom, they go down to Notre Dame. Deion Sanders in Colorado, they're the talk of college football. Then they lose a couple, 
And now, this past week, they blow a 29 to nothing lead and lose to Stanford in double overtime. That's why you couldn't buy into Dion just yet because of the program that Colorado had. Yes, it's already a turnaround, and yes, it's already a successful season, but let's not crown them as, you know, automatic, you know, championship favorites. They're going to win a bowl game, you know, this kind of stuff. Let's chill out on that. These kinds of things take time. And then, obviously, the game of the week for last week had to have been Washington and Oregon. Michael Penix Jr. versus Bo Nix. Washington hanging on after Oregon misses the field goal. Uh, Maybe the game of the year. Um, but it, it's been fun in college football. I mean, you still have your your dominance who really haven't moved, and that's Georgia, Michigan, and uh, Ohio State. But behind them, when you get to maybe that fourth spot in the college play, uh, football playoff, you know, is the Big 12 going to be represented? Is the Pac-12 going to be represented? I would love to see someone from the Pac-12 make it because that conference is disintegrating after this year. So it would be kind of uh, cool to see uh, the Pac-12 go out on a high note. Um, Austin Matthews, as we get to the NHL, he's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle because we've seen so many stars, you know, come and go, um, you know, like a Connor McDavid and a Nathan McKinnon, uh, even a Connor Bedard. He's gotten lost with them. But what does he do to start the season for the Maple Leafs? Two hat tricks to begin the year. That's right. He's already got six goals uh, on the season. And uh, what like we are going to talk about uh, in our next segment, uh, let's get local with Bridget Prue. Toronto is a good team this year. And the fact that he's the the guy, he's got to push through now. He's got to give them that playoff success. They finally, you know, broke the curse last postseason. They won a playoff series. Now is the time for them to take the next step. And if they're going to have any kind of success, it's got to be some big scoring outputs uh, from Austin Matthews. So we'll see if Matthews, obviously he's not going to get hat tricks at every single game, Um, but if he can maybe lead the league in uh, in goals, that would be a, a big step. That would be a big step uh, for Toronto uh, if they want to make some noise. And then lastly, to end this uh, segment, we got to get to the WNBA finals because there is a championship on the line, and it was going to be a blowout uh, series from the Aces, but the New York Liberty, they take game three back at home. They get to stretch this series over Las Vegas. And you got to keep in mind, going into this, these were two hyped up super teams that were put together and New York was supposedly, you know, structured to take down the reigning champs uh, in the Vegas aces. You know, when you have Brianna Stewart, John Quill Jones and Sabrina Inescu. Um, But sure enough, they get completely overmatched in Vegas in game one and two. You got Asia Wilson, Kelsey Plum, and now a possibly injured Chelsea gray uh, dominating things. I think if gray doesn't play, uh, in that game four, that opens the door for the Liberty to try and come back in this thing. But let's be honest, the Aces are just so well-constructed. They have a former NBA assistant uh, as their head coach in Becky Hammond. I think it's lined up perfectly for the Aces to eventually win this series, You know, whether that be this week or they have to wait for the weekend. Um, that remains to be seen. But that's what I'm expecting out of the WNBA Finals is the Vegas Aces to once again win the WNBA championship. So glad we could go around the rest of the sports world because now we got to get to a sports city that is dealing with a whole kinds of stuff, but in a good and in a bad way. Up next, we're going to get local with our Let's Get Local segment. This is our city.
So now, as we always do at this time, we go to our local teams and do our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And we're going to keep the Patriots short and sweet because we got to get to our conversation with Bridget Prue to preview the Bruins. And honestly, there's nothing much more to say about the Patriots as, yes, they look better, but still have a ton of issues as they lose in Las Vegas to the Raiders. Um, you know, two two things, obviously, to look at. In that last drive, Mac Jones, maybe his best throw of the year, and Devontae Parker just doesn't catch the ball. And I'm pretty sure that myself, Nick Fitzy Stevens, and Andy Hart all said on the postgame show was that Devontae Parker gets blame because he had that one. And then when you go to him postgame, he doesn't take any accountability for it. Like Devontae Parker said, oh, it was on my fingertips. Like he basically is shelling the question and he didn't own up to it. Like, are you kidding? That really got the conversation going between the three of us that you now, this is now a team sitting at one in five. The, the season is lost. It, it's without a doubt lost. You're not going to the playoffs. It's just a matter of looking respectable and playing for the future. But really, you need to start finding guys that can actually put in effort and actually care about playing well. You know, you look at last Sunday, Jabril Peppers had a great game, the way he absolutely leveled Devontae Adams and forced the interception from Jelani Tavai. Ezekiel Elliott maybe ran the best that he ran all season and maybe in the past, you know, 12 months or so, including his time with the Cowboys. Uh, Kendrick Bourne, he was Mac's favorite target. He made 10 catches of Mac. So you have to find guys that, are still invested uh, in this game. Because really, the way I look at it, Devontae Parker, he's not invested. Your offensive line is not invested. It's time to start selling off some pieces. Um, so um, it's just so frustrating to, to see this kind of thing, you know, especially the offensive line just literally letting Max Crosby go get Mac Jones and enforcing that safety. Um, the, the lack of accountability from Devontae Parker and the issue with all these guys, when you see Trent Brown not putting in any effort when he's supposedly one of the best tackles uh, in football, according to PFF, um, is that Bill Belichick already locked these guys up, okay? They gave Trent Brown more money. Um, they, they gave Trent Brown more money to end this supposed holdout or whatever. They gave Devontae Parker an extension because he wouldn't shut up about Devont uh, DeAndre Hopkins uh, visiting, he's like, oh, I'm only caring about my team. I don't care about DeAndre Hopkins. So you're locked into these guys, okay? And again, you just don't have the roster talent to compete. So now when you look at probably a top 10 draft pick, you know, you have to start looking at positions. Where does this team need the most help? Obviously, they need athletes. They need over-the-top talent. But really, they might need to be looking for a new quarterback because to me about Mac Jones, you know, yes, he played better. But again, he throws another ugly interception. And that one, to me, put the death nail into it that this guy is not the long-term solution. He's just not. You know, he yes, he he hit that deep ball to Devontae Parker. But how about the deep ball attempt uh, to uh, Tyquan Thornton? That wasn't even close. And uh, the fact that he's just trying to do too much and he keeps throwing it to the outside. He can't throw a deep ball. He basically can't throw anything 20 yards or more uh, down the field. So honestly... Um, Mac Jones is not the guy. He's just not the guy. And honestly, if this team just continued to not win, if they don't win in the next few weeks, you have to wonder, like, how much longer can you run with Belichick? Because I think everyone agrees 
that this season should be his last because his time has run his course in New England. He has poor roster construction, uh, which is the focal point of why this team stinks, and I fully believe that. Um, But if you continue to look lifeless uh, against the Bills, and then the week after that against the Dolphins, if you look lifeless against Gardner, Minshew, and the Colts, like how much longer can you go with this? Like, really, you cannot do it. So if this team gets to maybe like one and eight or whatever, then I think you might have to cut ties with them in the middle of the season because it's clear that guys just aren't buying into whatever kind of message or roster construction he's trying to put together. You know, there will be his big defenders. I mean, you're hearing guys like Teddy Bruschi saying it's time for him to walk away. Guys like Julian Edelman, it's time for him to walk away. You know, not many guys are defending what he has been doing. So I'm sorry, Bill, but your time is up in New England because you continue to just have no idea about how to put a really good competitive roster together. You just keep relying on complimentary guys rather than over-the-top talent. And I stress that again, talent. That is the big key. Uh, it's it, it's not fun. I mean, all the old heads will be saying, hey, this is what it was like in the 90s before number 12 came onto the field. Um, yes, and I bet you for those guys who said back then it sucked, this sucks too. This generation is now back in 1995 because this team is not good and they're going to get a high draft pick. I would love to see Caleb Williams in a Patriots uniform. There, I said it. All right, it would be nice because... You know, it's time to get a new man in charge. It's time to get a new quarterback under center and time to get guys who actually care about being a member of the Patriots. So that's kind of where I am with the Patriots. That's all negative, but I'm going to try and turn this thing positive because now I'm going to throw to a really fun conversation I had earlier in the day uh, with Bridget Pru. She's one of our Bruins insiders over at WEI. And we went back and forth. We talked about uh, what it was like and what uh, the preview for the Bruins is for this uh, upcoming season, even though they've had uh, two games. So let's throw it to earlier today with my conversation with Bridget Prue. So we'll continue our Let's Get Local and talk some Bruins as the season gets underway. And I thought we need an expert because obviously this guy right here, not the biggest hockey person, but we need an expert here. So joining me now, uh, she's part of the Sunday Skate podcast, which you can see on WEEI, wherever you get your podcast, WEEI's one of WEI's Bruins insiders, Bridget Prue, now joins us to talk a little bit of hockey. Bridget, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, Joe, nice to see you. Yeah, glad I we like can I find... haven't seen you. I feel like I haven't seen you around the office in a while. Yeah. We it's have a... completely different shifts during hockey season. Oh, for sure. Like when it was Bruins season, it was like one after another after another. Like once the Red Sox were done, now it's like we barely get to see each other. So glad we can have this conversation and get things going. And Obviously, things are going to be uh, a little bit different because the season will have already started, but it's early enough. We can still talk a little bit about what the expectations are for the season. So obviously, the big thing for the Bruins uh, was they had a historic regular season last year. They go out in the first round to the eventual Eastern champs and the Panthers. And then obviously for people like myself, the big story was that Patrice Bergeron, David Krejci, they retire first time in 20 years. Is it does it kind of feel like a new era considering like what you've been around with in the locker room training camp preseason? What what are the vibes you're getting from this Bruins roster? Um, I would say definitely the vibe is that there's a new leadership group. And so you're seeing some of the players that 
you saw grow up under Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci and Zidane Ochara start taking over those responsibilities of being the more veteran player in the lineup. So talking about Charlie McAvoy, Brendan Carlo, even David Posternock, um, and obviously Brad Marshall being named the captain. Uh, some of those guys having to mature and take on those roles of showing some of the younger kids. And because of the roster turnover, we see a few of the rookies being able to get in the lineup, uh, Johnny Beecher and Matt Patra, as well as Mason Lori, potentially going to be coming up at some point this season. He's starting out in Providence, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see him um, during the season at all. So you have guys that are just learning the ropes. And so you need some new leadership to step up and teach some of these new guys. And I, I spoke to Matt Patra before the season started and I asked him, did he ever cross paths with Patrice Bergeron or David Krejci? Because as a center, those would be, you know, two guys that it would have been helpful for him to learn under, but he said, no, he hasn't really crossed paths with them. So um, he's going to have to learn from other guys on the team about the culture so whether that be Charlie Coyle or Pavel Zaka um, or whomever maybe even Brad Marchand uh, to try to get some of these kids assimilated to the NHL yeah it definitely when you look at the cap situation obviously it had to be young because they went all out last year to get guys at the deadline and then to sign people in the offseason so they kind of had to do that youth movement speaking on that leadership what have you noticed about how most of the roster has been uh, responding to this new leadership with Marshawn as the new captain and some new voices sort of uh, speaking up? Well, I feel like Marshawn has been, was the obvious choice for the captaincy after seeing him last season and the way that he handled when Patrice Bergeron was out and when he was the voice in the room and from Everybody, what everybody has been saying, Coach Montgomery included, is that Marshawn was already a guy that people listened to, and he spoke up in the locker room and on the bench, and people naturally would just, um, they'd, they'd react and respond to his leadership, so no surprise there that he's the captain, and, um, and the way that the roster shakes out, I think that the Bruins actually ended up in a better situation than they thought they were going to be because going into free agency, it seemed like, okay, wow, we have to solve all of these gaps by adding guys that we don't, you know, we can only spend one to $2 million on. And then all of a sudden they have these internal solutions in Johnny Beecher and Matt Patra and, you know, potentially Mason Laura, like I mentioned. So that relieve some of the cap situation because these guys are coming in on rookie deals um and you see that already happening where they they actually brought in a guy as a free agent Jesper Boquist and then they waived him because um both Beecher and Patra turned out to be ready for the season ahead of ahead of schedule for Patra and kind of also a happy um situation that Beecher is ready at the same time yeah, it's definitely a lot of things were moving around. I know for the casual Bruins fans, they had to get used to a couple of new names. One name that was familiar that was returning, obviously, was Milan Lucic. That was a big story in the offseason of him returning. Uh, these first two games, we saw some significant ice time, or at least in some crucial moments. We saw him kind of, he was majority third, fourth line, but then there were times he was still playing with like Pasternak and his old teammates like Marshawn. Is that something we should expect all season long? And 
these other acquisitions like uh, Van Riemsdyk and Morgan Geeky, what do you think we can expect from them and all the other new acquisitions? I'll start with Lucci. Um, and he, by the way, just ta- I've been had the chance to talk to him a few times already. And he just seems so at peace with the fact that he's back in Boston. He's genuinely just so happy to be back. Um where he started out and I think that he's in a good situation right now on the fourth line because he has two quicker guys next to him right he's a little bit past his prime but then he has Johnny Beecher and and Jacob Lauko to really push the pace of that line and it makes him play faster than maybe he would have um, with other guys that are not as young or played a different style than those two so that line has really been formidable with the four checking and they've been able to set the tone energy-wise. A lot of times uh, you'll see them take the first shift or, or an early shift in the game and set the tone right from there. Um, so that has been their most consistent line. They really haven't messed with that. Even in practice, this m- most recent practice on Monday, they also kept that line together. You did see Lucci play up with Pasta Um, But that mostly happens on situations where they're coming off of a power play or usually comes off a penalty kill, right? So special teams sometimes dictates um, them having to switch up and say, because Lucic, uh, Patra, and Pasternak are all guys that don't spend much much of any time on the penalty kill. So those guys were all rested. And so he threw them all out there together. So, you know, you might see the odd shift where Lucic and Pasternak are out there together, but by and large, he'll be getting time with that fourth line. And it's been a strong fourth line from the preseason and in the first two games. And then uh, you asked about the other acquisitions. So James Van Riemsdyk is someone that uh, if you've been following the Bruins for a long time and since Van Reeves like entered the NHL, you know that he kind of has been a Bruins killer. He's been really good against the Bruins. So you maybe were thinking of him the as opposite of a fan favorite, opposite of fan. <laughs> yeah, favorite. but like he's a nice enough guy. He's not a pest, but like, he scores in such important situations against the Bruins in the past. And he's always right there in front of the net and taking away the goalie's eyes and, and scoring, you know, those easy layup goals off a rebound. Well, guess what? Now he's doing that for your team. So you're happy. Um, he's a great on the first power play unit out in front of the net. So he brings that net front presence. He's a big body. Like I, when I'm in the locker, Room and he walks by I'm like I feel like a child com- in comparison because he's he's so big um and so he he can bring we well, do feel like that with most of the players yeah I feel like that a, <laughs> lot, a lot of, of looking Brendan- up <laughs> yeah yeah most of them uh Brendan Carlo also makes me feel like that because he's I think six <laughs> five but um <laughs> but so he can the good thing about Van Riemsdyk is he can play in your top six but also, if you want to rotate him to the third line, you can do that. And we saw the Bruins practice lines have him in the third line this uh, this Monday because they rotated Matt Patra to a second line center role and Charlie Coyle back to the third line center role with Trent Frederick and James Van Riemsdyk. So the good thing about him is you can play him up and down the lineup and you can also play him on the power play. So he's pretty versatile and was added relatively cheap because he's on the back end of his career. He's not, you know, as fast as he used to be, but he's still really good at the role they want him to play. Yeah. So um, it really helped with those two power play goals the other night against Nashville. Mm -hmm. Definitely big on that one. Um, 
You keep mentioning the name Matt Patra. And for those who are kind of re-entering the Bruins uh, side of the season, they're like, oh, who's this Patra guy? I hadn't heard of him before. Uh, haven't really heard about him in Providence. So can you explain to those who might not know about Matt Patra, what is the hype surrounding this young player? And what are, is is he really like this big replacement center? You know, the Patrice Bergeron replacement that everyone thinks he might be. I think he, so to, to start with, the hype, right? He created his own hype this preseason just by, you know, having a relatively low bar coming in, being a 19 year old and having all this time left to develop. And I don't think he was originally part of their plan this season. Um, that's why they brought in free agents like Morgan Geeky and Jesper Bokus and um, Patrick Brown, who could play center and, and fill in those gaps that, Bergeron and Krejci left and then all of a sudden um, he comes into the preseason and he's your most effective center and he plays five out of six games and he looks good in every one of them and has multiple preseason goals and he's just making this case for himself like you can't send him back down I know he's 19 um, but he also is in the situation where uh, he's coming from juniors in the OHL with Guelph and he is too young to be sent down to Providence. So you either have to send him down to juniors where he already was the second leading point scorer last season and had an incredible year. Um, and I personally think his ceiling is, has been reached there and that he would get so much more out of playing in the NHL the whole year than you know going back down to work on what, like he can clearly be a playmaker at that level. Now you're going to see if he can be a playmaker in the NHL. And I think through the first two games of the season, you've really seen the vision that he has. Um, he, I would say, was probably their most effective center in both of the regular season games as well. At least five on five, he was making a big impact. He makes some really spectacular passes. And he's been compared, his skill set has been compared to David Krejci. So, uh, and and. We all know how good of a center David Krejci was uh, making the all centennial team of one of the top 12 forwards in Bruins history in a hundred years. Like if you can get anywhere near that skill set of Krejci in Patra, then you're really setting yourself up for an easy transition, which it happened quicker than Sweeney and a lot of people expected, but he's here and he's ready to play. And I believe the hype. I've had a chance to talk to him several times. He's really nice. I did a one-on-one -on -one interview with him for about 10 minutes the day before the season. And I just love his demeanor and his just his general attitude on how to take this all on. And, and he doesn't seem overwhelmed. And I feel like he has the right mindset to adapt to the challenges. And he's a very smart hockey player. There's always that one gem that the Bruins find over the past couple of years. And Patra and might be that second guy. Yeah, he's a second round pick. He's they didn't have a, a first round pick in that draft and they pick him in the second round um, above some other centers that were actually kind of ranked higher than him in terms of where they might go in the draft. But uh, Don Sweeney and the Bruins scouts selecting him and it is going to pay off for them based on what we've seen so far. I think his ceiling is really high. Yeah, as long as he doesn't peak too early, and plus he's got that great uh, veteran leadership around him. Um, outside of Patra, you also mentioned uh, Beecher and a couple of other young guys. Are there any other young guys who might be on the current active roster or maybe down in Providence or in the juniors that fans can really get excited for? 
I would say in terms of like in Providence, the players that are closest are Mason Lorai, who got a lot of time in the preseason and just barely didn't make the final cut. And I think was under heavy consideration to make that cut. He's he's another tall defenseman. He's six four. He's kind of like a big lanky defenseman. They had him playing in the preseason right next to Brendan Carlo. So that would be a really big uh, second pair if you ever were to put them together. The problem is it's easier. It was easier for the team to waive to to not have to waive other players and keep them and not expose them to the potential of another team grabbing them than it was to just send Lorai down. And he for sure could benefit from spending more time in Providence. So he's somebody that when he comes up, um, he's going to be exciting to watch. I'd say he's probably the closest to a call up. Um, and in the, you know, you, you don't want this to happen. You have two really good goalies, but in the event that maybe one of them is, injured um for a little bit of time brennan bussey is the goalie that's in providence and he had a really great preseason as well he had some saves that were like highlight real saves for an nhl goalie and you're thinking wow the bruins are really deep in that position they have this starting goalie in providence who could come play in the nhl um but there's just two guys in front of them that are so good that you know you you're not gonna get a look at him unless somebody gets hurt so um, obviously the Bruins not hoping for that, but he's a prospect that kind of makes things interesting at the goalie position because kind of gives you maybe a little bit more flexibility. I'm not saying this year, but maybe in the off season to trade a goalie. Um, if that's what you decide you need to do to maybe get another winger, because there's going to be a lot of really good free agent wingers coming available. So those two, I would say are probably Two to get excited about, maybe not this year for Bussy, but um, I think Laura is someone we can expect to see at some point. Yeah, at some point, as you said, via injury or uh, anything like that, they'll definitely find themselves on the active roster. Um, now from off the ice, let's get onto the ice. Obviously, it's only two games, and I don't think it's fair to say, oh, they're going to break their own record like they did last year. So what do you think are fair expectations for this team, considering they might be a little bit motivated from having that record and then losing in seven games in the very first round. What do you think the expectations are uh, for Jim Montgomery? And what do you think is a proper, maybe a floor and a ceiling for where this Bruins team can go? Joe, they're going to go undefeated. They're going to go undefeated this <laughs> hey, year. Two they're going so to break their record. Um, yep. So Pasternak's going to have 82 goals. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm just kidding, but uh one goal per game would be pretty off good to a great start and really i don't i think the pressure is off them a little bit after last season knowing that the the turnover that they had um and i feel like teams are maybe are not giving them the respect that they might actually deserve because they are thinking oh well without bergeron and Krejci, this team is not going to be the same but this is still a playoff team i think that this is you know at the minimum, I think this this is a wild card team, um, and potentially. The, so they're not finishing first, more than likely. Uh, I think Toronto has a good enough team. I picked Toronto to finish first um, in their division, but I I mean, once you make the playoffs, all bets are off. We saw it last season. So if you can get yourself in, even if it's in a wild card spot, um, then you're, you know 
you you have everything in your own hands. Obviously, you don't want to pull Carolina in the first round because they have a really good team on paper this year. Um, but I actually think the Bruins could finish second in the, in the division um, after Toronto because some of the other teams in the division also took a step back. So Tampa Bay has some roster flaws right now, um, dealing with a similar situation of um, cap issues. Florida, probably, you know, on paper, not as good as the Bruins, though we saw what they could do and, you know, they still have Kachuk. So, um, you know, things are, are different. But in terms of in the division, I could see them finishing second or third. But I, I really do think this is a playoff team. So nothing less than making the playoffs for them this year. Yeah, I think everyone's looking at everyone who left rather than everyone who came in. As you say, if you lose Bergeron, Krejci, Hathaway, Orlov, all those guys, that will make it like really worse, uh, especially for fans. Um, last thing I want to tell you, uh, ask for you real quick is obviously this is a big season because it's the centennial season for the Bruins. We saw the release of uh, the top Bruins players. We had big ceremonies. I know you're going to be covering it pretty much all season long. What are you looking forward to most as the Bruins celebrate uh, their 100th season as a member of the NHL? Well, I so I was at the first game. Um, they had the gold carpet where all of the legends came up, and um, we had a chance to talk to a lot of them, including Bergeron and Krejci, Tim Thomas. It was nice to, for me, it was the first time meeting a lot of those guys um, because they're generations before um and I started covering the team this is my fourth season so um obviously I met Krejci and Bergeron and talked to them on many occasions but some of the other guys um not so much and uh so that was neat and to see all of them and, and how much pride they had to be part of this celebration and part of this organization um really kind of gives you the idea of just how strong the culture has been in Boston for so long um the celebration itself was just, it was perfectly done. Um, and it, there was a lot of energy, a, a lot of fans there really supporting and enjoying the ceremony that they did. I think they did a very good job rolling out the legendary 100, the centennial team, the the first game of the season with all of the different media graphics and and videos that they put together so that was really cool it was kind of one of those moments where I'm sitting there and I'm like wait a minute like this is crazy like I'm I'm here covering this and like I know you probably have had similar moments Joe like when you're a kid you're like I was watching Tim Thomas play and like that's how come I got into this business was some of these guys and now I'm talking to them and now I'm like watching this incredible ceremony and I'm like oh wait I do this for a job now this is crazy because uh I would do this for free so so it was kind of just one of those like pinch yourself moments um it went so smoothly and I'm excited to see what else happens throughout the season on um, New Jersey's which have grown on me at first I didn't like them all that much um with the sparkly gold which don't get me wrong I love sparkles but I wasn't sure it really <laughs> made sense on on the Bruins uh jerseys but they've grown on me yeah they're trying they're to terrible. make you focus on the the old school logo rather than all the glitter and the glitz I, and, but you can't you, you always gotta focus on the glitter so yeah it's been <laughs> nice to be a part of and you kind of get that old and new sense because um you have all the legends hanging out around the team including some that are just just recently like it must have been weird for Bergeron and crazy to go watch the game rather than play in it and um 
and so you get this the old and then this injection of life from some of these younger players um and some some of the core players that are getting more responsibility you just kind of feel that the youthfulness of the team is it could be something that helps bring energy yeah i was just side note really quickly it must be good for those legends to see such a young team go out there on the ice and uh Mm -hmm. so far win their first two games at home would you say yeah so that's always the main thing right you have a huge ceremony of all of your best players that are still you know with us and able to show up you don't want to disappoint them. You want to have a good get. You want to win that game. Um, and they did. So, uh, good on them. They gave them a win to watch because <laughs> I mean, you don't want to have Bobby Orr come all the way and <laughs> then you lose in front of him and everybody else. But, um, no, they won and it was an entertaining game. I will say that first period, I was sitting there like, this is good hockey. So, um, I was. I was pleasantly surprised with just how well things were clicking from that first period. And obviously still so much to get better at throughout the season, but the Bruins are kind of lucky. They're starting off again. And, you know, I I think this works in their favor with younger players. They're starting off with a somewhat weaker schedule. So they're playing against Chicago who had Connor Bedard, but the reason why they got Connor Bedard is because they were terrible last they were really year. Bad. So, <laughs> so like there's that doesn't solve all of their problems, even though he was really good. Um, and I certainly have bought into the hype on him after seeing him play. But um, and then they play Nashville, which isn't you know that they're not one of the tougher teams in the league. And now they go out on the road to play against San Jose next. And we had picked San Jose to finish last this year. Anaheim also not a team that um is considered to be a strong team you know to put it nicely so probably good that oh, you can be unfiltered the- here if you want to say they yeah, suck they suck probably good to be playing those teams early in the year in order to acclimate players try a few different line combinations see um just kind of have an easier foot in the door for some of these guys yeah definitely for sure and just really quickly before we let you plug all, plug all your uh, podcasts and all that. Did you agree with the all centennial team? I, I mean, a lot of it is very easily agreeable, right? Um, there was, so I feel like the toughest was goalie because they've had way more than two legendary goalies in the franchise's history. Right. So obviously Tim Thomas has won a Stanley Cup with the Bruins. Um, Scott was really so Scott was on the selection committee, our other Bruins reporter. And there, <laughs> there is a video, there's like an hour-long special that the Bruins put together of like the, the 20 people that were in the room making the selections. And Scott, like you hear Scott pipe up in the background and and like make his case for Tim Thomas. And I really do think he there there is a case to be made for him. Um I, I don't think anyone that made the team, you can really knock them though. Like those are all really good players. Some of them are just from so long ago that people might not really know. Um, and it was nice to see that everybody thought that Pasternak was somebody that should make the team because I know he hasn't finished his career here yet. And a lot of the other guys had, but he's very clearly going to be one of the top goal scorers, point scorers. He's going to be a top of a lot of offensive categories for the Bruins by the time he finishes career. He probably will finish it with Boston based on the extension he just signed. And I think he would like to 
spent a lot of his career, if not the whole career here. So um, he definitely deserved to make it this 100 years rather than him get put on and for the 200th team. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to be around. He's not going to be around. So nice to see him get on this one. Yeah, I definitely am going to have to keep track of those emotions uh, for you during all these ceremonies. Make sure you have yeah. everything in check when you're talking to Bergeron and Tim Thomas and all of them. Yeah, I got to I got to watch you and I got to monitor for you for that. Um, Bridget, <laughs> thanks for taking the time. Uh, before you go, talk about uh, the skate podcast with WEI, yourself and Scott McLaughlin. What can people expect if they tune in? Um, So we're in our third season I want to say it doesn't matter we took over it actually used to be run by our boss Ken Laird <laughs> um but then he you know got promoted and didn't have time to do it so me and Scott and Brian my name is Bridget Prue Scott McLaughlin Brian DeFelice we took it over and um have been doing it ever since so this year we're putting up um three episodes per week usually Mondays and Wednesdays and then on the weekend, you know, TBD usually Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, because I am incredibly busy on the weekends. And so is Scott. <laughs> so, um, because I broadcast college hockey on Friday and Saturday. So, um, so yeah, our, that's our posting schedule. We have a Twitter that you can follow. We also post a video versions now on the WEI YouTube under the skate pod playlist. So you can watch it there or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you know, the spiel. <laughs> um, and then it's it hasn't started yet, but once the NFL ends, which is a while away, we're not talking about till February, <laughs> we do have a, a Sunday morning show called Sunday Skate with me, Scott McLaughlin, and Andrew Raycroft. So um, that's still a while away, <laughs> but you also might hear Scott or I on some of the shows filling in for, um, you know, just kind of like a Bruins correspondent. Yeah, uh, for sure. For sure. I think some of us want that Patriots and football season to end pretty soon the way. Yeah, it's you know what? Maybe maybe the Sunday skate will start early this year. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll set up Thanksgiving deadline. If it's that, we might need to put you guys on early. <laughs> uh, Bridget Prue, part of the skate team, Bruins correspondent for WEI. Thank you for taking the time and we'll be looking forward to watching your stuff all season long for the Bruins. Thank you, Joe. Special thanks again to Bridget Prue. Make sure you tune in to her and Scott McLaughlin on the Skate Podcast via WEI and Odyssey. It's a lot of fun to listen to her. Super uh, glad she came on the podcast. But now we're going to shift to our LOL moment of the week. And this week, again, we're going to stay in the NFL. We're actually going to go to Monday Night Football because there is uh, some camera shots that are going around of this Chargers fan who is basically going through all the fields right now as the Chargers and Cowboys were going back and forth. And you can see that it looks really over the top. You know, there's there's tears, there's near tears, there's full-on excitement. And it's got everyone wondering, was this a plant by either the Chargers, ESPN, or the NFL to show that there are fans of the LA Chargers, because I'll put it to you like this. I don't know if you watch the game on Monday night or if you've been to SoFi Stadium for a Chargers game, but that crowd was very heavily on Dallas's side for that one. There were big cheers when Dallas had some big gains and they took the lead, and then Stephon Gilmore got that game-winning interception. It was a very loud 
crowd uh, in SoFi that supposedly is the home of the Chargers. But we know this about L.A. fans. We know that they don't show up. We know, as annoying as they are, that Cowboys fans show up. So maybe it was the NFL's way of showing that, hey, there are some Chargers fans that go to these games, and these Chargers fans are actually invested. But I don't know if I would have picked this lady as your plants. I think you have to go for someone who might have, uh, like, actually knows football. I don't know if this woman, I mean, I might need to, like, get her on the phone or not just to say, like, do you know what a first down is? Do you know uh, all this kind of stuff? Because let's face it, L.A. is the home of Hollywood. You know, where they are in uh, Englewood is right outside of Hollywood, uh, a couple miles away from the Hollywood sign. So there's no doubt in my mind that uh, there might have been some actors uh, that have maybe gotten contacted by the league uh, to maybe be a plant and just be uh, this kind of this kind of fan. Um, I will say, you know, if, if they didn't go over the top or was like on pins and needles like they were just it wasn't a convincing fan to me. OK, like a convincing fan, like you basically go to any sort of crowd shot, like if they wanted to get a good plant uh, and a good actor to be a Chargers fans, like go to these like diehard teams, like go to Arrowhead for Kansas City, go to uh, MetLife, maybe with the Jets or the Giants, go to Philly, uh, to Lincoln Financial Field with the Eagles and take notes from them. Take notes for them rather than just saying, okay, we need an actor to play a football fan. Uh, What do you know about the Chargers? They're in LA. All right, you're hired. That's basically how the conversation went. Um, So we are having some fun at this. So I guess you can put it on the fan and the league for maybe putting a plant there. But I think for now, I'm going to give it to the lady. This uh, Chargers fan, who I put in quotations, Chargers fan, who uh, took the social media by storm with all her over the top reactions for the LA chargers has gotten herself into this week's LOL moment of the week. And just like that, we are done here with episode 90 of let me speak. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Make sure you follow me on social media at Joe Braverman PBP on twitter or x joe braverman on instagram and on facebook and don't forget to follow this podcast as well on facebook and instagram just search let me speak podcast once again thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time for episode 91 of let me speak later